0: Lisa Burke Show. Hello, everyone, and I'm delighted to be back with you and more delighted to have Sasha back with me uh, on The Lisa Burke Show. I hope you've had a wonderful, wonderful start to your summer holidays. If you're on summer holidays, a wonderful start to the first weekend where the children are off school here in Luxembourg. At least most of them are now off, if not all of them are now off. So uh, lots of plans to be had, I'm sure, lots of sleep to be caught up on for the children and also the parents, of course, and activities. Are underway in this very very hot weather we've been having. So, Sasha, it's so nice to be back with you. Oh, no, it's lovely to be back, Lisa. And congratulations on winning
1: the not the news quiz. <laughs> you were super. Oh, I think it'll be the first and last time I'll be allowed on. <gasps> Only. <I understand. laughs> it's quite competitive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Steps is a little bit. Well, yeah. I think they're all quietly competitive, aren't they? Whereas I'm, I'm perfectly happy to kind of not know much. <laughs> anyway, no. But actually, I really love the questions Meredith had this week. They were so diverse.
1: They're fun, aren't yeah, they? No, it's really a really fun, fun thing and you always come across not t- as knowing a lot about a lot of things. No. <laughs> Maybe not on the trivia that's in the quiz. <laughs> no, I don't.
0: <laughs> well, this is lovely. You've sent me a lovely list of stories we could talk about. And so for you looking at the news all week, what have been your highlights
1: well, I w- I was saying actually this week has been um, I kind of get that summer feeling as well. We're heading into the holidays, and last week was so intense on one story, which was obviously Boris Johnson resigning, which which had. Interest across the world, actually, um, and the whole, you know, push to get him out. And this week, it's just been lots of little stories. There hasn't been one thing that really has dominated the news. Um, You know, you follow the the Sri Lanka crisis, which has obviously reached a a real peak this week, um, with the president actually officially resigning, having left the country and is now in safety in Singapore. But the protests. Um, continue and continue, but they have achieved what they wanted, which was to get this governing family of the Rajapaksas out. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully um, they can sort of start anew and start a whole new um, economic
0: well, I hope Reform. so. It's it's interesting actually. Two of the things you've touched on there. Of course, last week we had all of the stories about Boris Johnson, and I've been listening to this fantastic podcast I must recommend called London Grad by Tortoise Media. It's superb, and uh, we I don't know it. Really. Oh, Have I, I a really listen? recommend yes. it, and and Boris Johnson is certainly mentioned in that. And they've done a little um, additional uh, episode actually on his connection to the Lebedev uh, family. But very very interesting indeed. <clears throat> but moving to Lanka Lanka Lanka. Interesting you mentioned that too because I was lucky enough to visit Sri Lanka before Covid with my daughters and we had the most wonderful journey there and I've kept in touch with a few people from there that we met and just yesterday one of the ladies uh, was uh, messaging me about the situation there and uh, I feel so sorry because that country has been hit over and over again from the tsunami to economic and oil crises to this situation. So I Truly hope something positive can come from this.
1: Yes, I think uh, if you visited Sri Lanka, which I I also did, and it sort of stays in your heart, doesn't it? It does. And so I have been following it quite closely because you feel so sorry for people because it's it's not of their own doing. Um, If you're driving um, a rickshaw around Colombo and you can't get petrol, you can't earn enough to feed your family, and. Having been there, you just know that's that that that's
0: the situation. Yeah, and um, they're so really kind. Hard. Yes, with such a long history and heritage, and, and it's such a rich country yes. in in terms of what is on the island. It's a beautiful country. But what I read, which I also thought was interesting, is that uh, apart from
1: the corruption, one of the real problems has been that they um, the government said that they had to switch to organic farming and uh with no fertilizers the actual agriculture um the the output dropped so substantially that that has been a really major issue
0: wow that is Absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's wonderful to have that edict (laughs) set out, but without
1: (laughs) the steps in place to make it happen, from one day to the next, (laughs) that's a little bit sudden. With drought, yeah, yeah, for sure,
0: for sure. Oh my goodness. Uh, So, yeah, that story is—it's truly sad. But all I can can personally hope is that it, it can somehow, in a short space of time, turn around for the people of that wonderful land. Yes, no, exactly.
1: And what else and have we got on our list? There were lots. So there were lots of uh, other stories. I yeah. mean, there were the the first pictures on the from the James Webb Telescope, <gasps> oh, which yes. I imagine were pretty exciting to you. I mean, yes. I, can, I still can't get my head around the fact that you can take photographs of. Uh, uh, universe 13 billion years ago. I read it and kept yeah. thinking
0: the numbers are not right. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I, it's just so extraordinary because I was lucky enough to be working at the um, ESA this week, the European Space Agency, and it's so lovely. The space family is really like a family. They're so friendly and kind and grounded. And all of their work is to just uh, look out there beyond our Earth, but with a huge connection to Earth and there's always this conversation because they, you know, people sometimes say, why should we research in space? But it's just that constant wonder and fascination that we've had through through the ages. If you look back into the literature, the arts, people have always been fascinated with space. And I, that curiosity, I hope, will always continue, you know, when we look at it and it, it makes us feel well, quite insignificant, really. But it also hopefully makes us want to protect our Earth. And a lot of the research that's done in space can really benefit Earth as well.
1: Yeah, and I imagine it's quite smart of NASA to to publish these photos because apart from anything else, they were so beautiful. And, and I think Pe- people looking at them who don't understand. Yeah, uh, you just look and you sort of realise the beauty and the age. And who, yeah. as you are as, how insignificant we are here, um, it, it must have a positive outcome in the end.
0: Yeah, and like you were saying at the beginning, it's uh, looking back into such a lens of time. We find it extraordinarily hard to mentally get our heads around the distances in space. It, it's. It, I remember I read Bill Bryson's book many years ago, Brief History of Nearly Everything. Mm-hmm. And he starts that book talking about space. And uh, and for him, I remember distinctly, it was trying to mentally comprehend the distances. It, it, it's literally, it's,
1: it warps your mind. That's right. I've read it and he, he yeah. tries
0: to make it understandable, isn't yeah, it, for, for people who don't understand science, we, which, uh <laughs> It's, it's hard. Yeah, but even people who kind of have some science in their heads, it's still hard. It, probably even for people who really work in space all the time to They're literally working on distances that are so huge I mean it's really amazing that you can look back into history when you look at these pictures it's truly truly amazing yeah no I, I don't quite understand how it, how you can but uh, yeah it's a beautiful yes. as you say beautiful beautiful pictures coming out from that uh, that wonderful James Webb telescope and uh, then we have some sports stories and and this made me giggle when you wrote your note about sports news because I completely understand <laughs> well um, it is true when I
1: started uh working here on the news. Um, and Sam told me I had to do a minute of sports news um, in every bulletin. I I panicked a bit. Well, that was the bit I was most worried about, because I really am not a sports person. I don't really follow any sports. Um, you know, I would watch the Wimbledon final like last weekend very happily that's kind of it.
0: Um, so it really, really Well, I know you like Wimbledon because I know you like Boris Becker. Ah. You've met Boris Becker and I know there's a little connection to
1: Wimbledon. Well, actually, I might. Yes, it's moved on. I rather like Kyrios now with, oh. his,
0: with his
1: super hyper nervous chatter yeah. shouting at the audience. It was a very exciting final, I have to say. Um, but what I realised over time is that, of course, sports is is great uh, in in sports news not discussing matches and analysing it I would never be able to do that but sports is so political. Yes. Um, so it's completely fascinating. So we have all the the boycotts against Russian players or Belarusian players. Um, that was that was Wimbledon, wasn't it? Yes. Um, then uh, the ice skating Grand Prix have just announced that uh, again that uh, Russia and Belarus cannot take part, and in fact that the they have to change the host. Um, and, and from from that to going to something like Djokovic and his um, uh, objection to th- COVID, that COVID vaccination. Yes, in Australia. Yeah. It's so political. It's completely fascinating. It so find it breeze. really easy.
0: Yes, because they are representatives of so much more than just their sport. Yes. They are representatives and ambassadors for their country, their nation state. And you're right. I remember that story with Djokovic and uh, he didn't want to abide by what the Australian rules had in place for, for people entering the country with COVID vaccinations. And he didn't make it clear why he was doing it until...
1: So way after, <laughs> yes. Only now has he kind of come out and said, yeah. actually, no, I am not vaccinated. So I won't be able to play in the uh, US Open. Yeah. Um. So no, I think that's very interesting. Or the other one is, I mean, I'm not a great football fan. I learned a bit when my son was very enthusiastic about football. But... but um you know, the the chaos that happened in Paris for that Champions League match yeah. and the fact that the French authorities refused to take any um, responsibility for it. They still blame the Liverpool players saying they t- or too many people turned up without tickets. Um, OK, I'm not, not sure what exactly yeah, the no, situation yeah. is, but it's, it's super interesting. It so is. I'm quite enjoying doing sports. And of course, we've had the Mo Farah story as well. Of course, I've completely forgot to mention that, yes. And that's very interesting. Um, And I think, what a brave man. And we've admired him as an athlete. He's a Mm. long-distance runner. Um, And he did a documentary this week in which he um, told the story of the fact that he is not a Somali refugee, but that he was trafficked um, from Djibouti as a child aged eight and made to work as a domestic servant in, in London um and of course uh i mean it, it's heartbreaking it's giving me goosebumps um, as you say it. yes. it's literally and of course the person that realized that all was not right was his sports teacher um because he must have put all his emotional upset and anger in, into uh sports and running and uh he realized that it wasn't right he he then um uh, went to the authorities and told them and he was eventually moved to a uh, Somali family and grew, grew up with them as a, as a teenager. Wow. Um, so what a story to come out of someone who who's like a picture book, um, athlete, he has British nationality. Um, yeah, I think it's amazing.
0: And extraordinary that he could find sport and that wonderful sports teacher, what a hero. Yeah, but so often,
1: isn't it this yeah. case that teachers find out yeah. uh, that there's something wrong at home
0: uh, yeah that's that's a real art I think to be able to pick up on that sensitivity and to see what what is happening and why is that happening and to just perceive beyond the textbook so to speak yeah and to confess after so many years yeah because that's a burden he would have been carrying
1: carrying for a really long time yeah. Yeah. that he isn't I mean his name isn't is was was it a given name that's not his name that, his that's not where family. he's from yeah
0: what is the story of his I'd love to see that documentary actually I must uh, look that up in fact thank you for for highlighting that because it truly is amazing now we have heat waves we have wildfires we've got avalanches we've got all sorts going on heat is part of the news
1: it is part of the news Mm. isn't
0: it um
1: it's extraordinary I mean we feel it's hot here but Mm. I mean to Yesterday it was forty-five degrees in in a in in a village in southern Spain, and you sort of think, well, forty-five degrees—that's actually dangerous to go to go out, isn't it? And the wildfires, um, you know, in Europe, and these were stories that we used to read: wildfires in California, or you know, sort of far and distant places in Morocco. But this is uh, Europe, so it's quite surprising across Portugal, Spain, France. Um, there have been wildfires campers being moved away from from their campsites um, and of course we had the avalanche that uh, th- that was triggered by a glacier breaking up yeah. and I read that today that um, in Switzerland they're covering glaciers with uh, sheeting to wow. protect them from from this intense heat Gosh. So we know they're melting but that they actually break up and cause an avalanche that's that's another New weather phenomenon that I hadn't yeah. heard of.
0: Wow, that uh, it's it's heartbreaking actually that we're seeing what has been predicted for a few decades now, and we are seeing everything that was spoken about. And um, actually, at ESA this week, uh, Ed Gillespie spoke, and he spoke about this need, this true, true need to look after the climate. And in fact, he really uh, does as he preaches. Oops. Apologies for a computer. Let me turn the sound off my... No, but Ed Gillespie, um, you know, he took the ferry across yeah. to the Netherlands and he doesn't fly. And he wrote a book about travelling the world without flying, etc. So, um, But yeah, there's true need for everybody to become a an aware global citizen to do our best for the planet in whatever we perceive to be the best way. But we need to educate ourselves. It needs to be part of our educational system to try to help because we are really... We can see the effects now around us of climate change. We need to hurry, it seems, yes. It's because sort it's, of it's, too late. It's happening. It's happening. It? It's sort of too late to definitely get the 1.5 degrees. Uh, let's hope we can get just keep it at two degrees difference. Um, but uh, even that, I'm not sure. But I know, for example, the uh,
1: European uh, Union had made this the Green Deal yeah. uh, uh, one of their priorities. But of course, Covid happened. Yes, um, And so I think it's really gone on a back burner.
0: Although COVID helped with flying, it did, didn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and movement. And flying is one of the big... But yeah, I mean, there's just so many parts of this story and we all just have to try to be cognizant of it. Yeah. A large part of it actually is... Um, well, no. Let, let's not go down that rabbit hole because... That, <laughs> we could talk about climate change <laughs> That, for one, long that time, one will take a long we? time. Yes. Now let's move to another story. Uh, well, actually, I suppose connected to that slightly in the news is water shortages. So we have to be careful of water levels. Yes. I, I, even in Luxembourg but yes. they told
1: people not to fill their swimming pools which did make me laugh <laughs>
0: don't fill your swimming pool or paddling pool <laughs> or but, wash your cars yeah, i think that will be a major sacrifice
1: that's for true people here.
0: i literally as i was driving here this morning because i know one of the other news stories a few weeks ago is that i think per capita luxembourg has the most luxury cars or yes yes like this. and i literally drove past one house on my route here through Begin and uh, it's a very notable house because it's on the main road, and it's got a huge big red gorilla outside. I don't,
1: oh, yes, yeah. I know the house, <laughs> yeah, yes. People,
0: and in the front of the house were two great big uh, Range Rovers and a Mini. And uh, I thought, that's so Luxembourgish. Yeah. Being washed? Uh, n- not being washed, but very clean. <laughs> They're always very clean. I'm always quite embarrassed when my car is not clean enough. <laughs> yeah, so no, water, water levels, of course, very important. So I won't fill up my swimming pool with water. Yeah. I don't have water. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so now we have had also in the news repeatedly recently, Bettel and his views on mandatory vaccination.
1: Isn't it interesting? It's such a controversial subject. Mm. Um, and I, I, it's taken me a while to understand why it's so controversial, really. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in Luxembourg, over 78% of the population are vaccinated. But there's a kind of stubborn few thousand, I think around 30,000 people who are not being vaccinated for whatever reason. Um, And so this discussion about mandatory vaccination has been going on. It's been brewing. And there was a panel of um, scientific experts who advised for mandatory vaccination. um, And but the government has decided not to do it for now. They've left, a little, oh. they've left it a little bit open. Should the yeah. COVID situation obviously get much worse in the autumn, they will reconsider. Um, but and it's I guess, very
0: strange for a government to go against the scientific advice when they themselves are not scientists.
1: But I suppose how would you enforce it? It must be. I mean, in Austria, yeah, that's they, a good question. In Austria they, they did uh, introduce mandatory vaccinations. But what I don't know is... Is it enforceable what what do you do with people who refuse? I mean, can you fine them? You're I mean, right. it is, is it against your on human your rights?
0: <laughs> I mean, and do you see it on uh, how do you, yeah, how do you monitor
1: medical records? Exactly. I mean, I I understand that if you go into hospital, you want to know that the people who are looking after you are vaccinated.
0: But that's not the case always because a lot of the people who work in the hospitals are not from Luxembourg. Yes, exactly. So so I, I do understand the, the need for a mandatory vaccination. But that wouldn't even be... I mean, when it comes to the staff, you can't even do that across the borders. And we've got so many cross-border workers here. So it becomes even more complex in Luxembourg.
1: Yes. I mean, I suppose you can just do like they... they in Germany, they they exclude you from jobs and going into certain shops if you're not vaccinated. I mean, that during the height, do you remember, you had mm. to show your ID and your um, vaccination certificate. Mm, mm. But... I, I am surprised how controversial it is. Yeah. People feel very strongly about it. They
0: they certainly do. It's a, it's a sensitive topic that keeps going because, as we know here in the building, poor Sam Steen's family have been hit <laughs> numerous times. Again. Yes, <laughs> by COVID. Now, we're also talking about everything that's going on in Luxembourg at the moment. There's so many events, so many concerts. It's just fabulous.
1: It is quite extraordinary. I mean, we keep talking about it on The Morning Show, saying, well, what are you going to do today? And there's a sort of choice of three or four events. Um, And uh, there's obviously so many open air concerts taking place again this weekend and all throughout the week. And the organisers have said it's because a lot of things were cancelled over the last two weeks and were postponed to this summer. And everybody also, they want to start recouping a bit of money. But what's really interesting is that they haven't sold out. um, I think People are worried about the cost of living, as we know. And I don't think people necessarily, even in Luxembourg, can go to three concerts during the week. I mean, they are quite expensive. They are quite expensive. And um, so even Tom Jones last night wasn't sold out. So I thought that was amazing because that would have been sold out, surely, in normal situations. And the organisers um, have also said, of course, that there are a lot of events that are free of charge. So the uh, Philharmonic put on the... The, all those concerts open air concerts last weekend and a lot of the communes are putting on things and the, the, the Luxembourg city putting on mm-hmm. concerts and events and that also impacts on People paying Buying, events. yes um, so they're quite cross about it they're saying there's too many things going on for free
0: <laughs> that's an interesting question Dilemma, actually. I know my daughters are going with their dad to see Alicia Keys tonight, right. um, which had been cancelled over two years ago and is, is back on tonight so I know uh, they were saving up their energy for tonight so th- yeah anyway so, so I, Yeah I, I think they will have a lovely time there and uh, finally we've got a, a few stories uh, bringing our thoughts I know it's the kind of the closing day of school today the 15th we're recording this on the Friday the 15th of July we've got our eyes on uh, September already when it comes to free childcare and and schooling and uh, everything that's coming up in September and the ch- changes therein
1: yeah there there are are quite big changes I have to say that there will be free childcare during the week so from 7 a.m till 7 p.m starting in September so that must make a huge difference for families I imagine working families when I think when I first came to Luxembourg and my kids went to the local school and at 12 o'clock it was finished and there was nowhere for them to go at lunchtime there wasn't even and I was I couldn't believe that you were expected to actually pick up your child at twelve and bring them back at uh, one fifty or two. Yes, yeah, um, yeah I couldn't so believe it either. But <laughs> so now there's wraparound childcare for free. Yeah, um, they're also, I think, they're going to try and address the issue of French um, in a lot of schools because I think a lot of foreign children um, who, who haven't necessarily been born and brought up in Luxembourg. Uh, joining the Luxembourgish Bergish, uh, system, have a, a big issue with all the subjects being in French from secondary level. So in a lot of schools, they're doing um, additional French uh, classes to sort of like basic standard classes to bring them up. Of course, they're, they're investing a huge amount of money in, in the international schools, again, mm. for children who struggle with the uh, main languages in Luxembourg. Um and was, there, there was one other thing, free childcare.
0: Yes, well, it's, it's a, a number of things. We've got free daycare. Uh, we've also got the free lunches now. So That's what right. you've just described, which I also... Could not believe when I came here. Now there will be that maison relais or foyer care through the lunch times, and also the music lessons will be free for children. Of course, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. that makes a big difference. So there's it? there's wonderful things on offer, but um, I, I certainly know I need to improve my French.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you won't be doing it for free.
0: No, I won't, sadly. But I, actually, there are some. Yeah, you know, I need to investigate how, how, where, and how to improve my French. Well, it's hard, isn't it, when you. W- Your working
1: days are in English to really, really make an effort um, to keep speaking French. That's my French has become really rusty again since working here. Oh, I'm sorry. We've
0: diluted your French capacity. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) It's all your fault. Nothing to do with my laziness. (laughs) No, no, no. You're multilingual. It's wonderful. Oh, well, is there any other thing? Oh, the only other Capitani. Capitani. Which I think is
1: amazing, the success of Capitani. It makes me laugh. We had uh, an American visitor and he sent me a little email saying, I'm preparing for my visit to Luxembourg. I've watched Capitani. (laughs) He's in the States watching it. And now the second series has hit the uh, top 10 in uh, countries that you expect, like Luxembourg and Belgium, but also Places like Poland, which I find quite interesting, Uruguay, Argentina. It's extraordinary. Um, so the appeal is obviously universal to a detective series based in Luxembourg. It's fantastic. Have you watched? I haven't watched the second series. I have watched the first. And what do you think? I really enjoyed it. But I think partly the enjoyment was also recognising different places. The spots and yes. the,
0: probably the people on yes. occasion <laughs> as well say, oh, that's my friend. <laughs> Sasha, as always, a joy to have you here talking about what hasn't quite hit the headlines in, in our headlines every day. Uh, wonderful to, to see you again. And I wish you a lovely weekend ahead. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio. Hello and welcome to our TV show here at ICT Spring. It's my great pleasure and privilege to once more introduce you with us, Sean Cleary. Great to have you here, Executive Vice Chair of the Future World Foundation, Steve Whiting, you're going to talk perhaps about embedded finance and more, Head of Payments Technology at Soldo. So just to begin with, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do now with your global think tank?
2: The reason why we created our Future World Foundation when we created it was to try to address what we saw as the primary issues on the global agenda. And we defined those as being five. The first one was to make economic activity socially and environmentally sustainable. The second was to reconceptualize poverty and inequality through the lens of equity. The third was to integrate security from the individual human level through the sub-national, national, national, regional and global levels, recognizing that in all cases what we are trying to do is to reduce vulnerability, therefore ring-fencing national security as distinct from human security or community security doesn't actually make any particular sense. It's all intended to reduce the vulnerability of humans. So those three issues are the three drivers. Then we recognized that there were two things that had to happen to enable that to occur on a collective scale. The first was we had to have a reasonable degree of normative coherence. There had to be some agreement about the rules of the game and how you were going to address these types of challenges across states. And then lastly, but only lastly, you had to reform the institutions of global governance in such ways that they were responsive both to the challenges and to the changed normative framework for that purpose. So that's what it does. And it tries to grapple with the fact that politically, we are accountable at national levels. Governments are elected by citizens of individual countries. But an enormous range of the challenges that we face in the world today can only be solved through collective action. So one part of it is data adequacy and a proper understanding of the nature of the challenge. But another part of it is reaching agreement on how to address challenges of quite extraordinary magnitude which can't be done at individual levels. That's how we come at it.
0: Well, with those five topics, I'm sure we could have a, a very long and deep discussion. Pausing there, moving to you, could you just introduce Soldo and the work that you do?
3: Yes, thank you, Lisa. Um, well, I think we're coming from it from a, a completely different angle, but the long-term objective is to harmonise with something that is, is uh, appropriate and good for our end customers, ourselves, or participating in this ecosystem, and we're in technology. So Soldo was started um, before even fintech was a a word. We we, uh, decided to take the uh, the Internet type of technologies and thinking and methodologies and put onto them financial products. So we chose to take a prepaid card and electronic money, put them together and create a new way of spending money for organizations. And that organization would be a business. So our product is for businesses of all sizes. And uh, we have now, seven years later, around 30,000 customers happily paying and using uh, our product. In Luxembourg, for example, we're here because there could be well over 100,000 companies registered who have a problem of how to access their company money and spend. So we have a solution that would, be, would enable the company to put money onto their soldo product and start spending for their operational banking needs. Um, one, one thing there is that we're using technology to automate, and this is where I think we join together in our vision. That we know we're building something very practically, but we also have the vision for it to be um, viable in the long term, and that's why we're building our own platforms using our own engineers. We have something like 150 engineers all day focusing on this thing, which is a product, but underneath is a, is an, it's integrating into the ecosystem.
0: Well just moving back to your vision and perhaps your example is a little bit easier and clearer than the five pillars that you spoke about because there are so many things that need to be fixed in the world. Well, fixed is a big word. They'll probably never be fixed, but addressed, let's say addressed. And earlier today you spoke about vision, a connected vision, a mutual vision when it comes to diplomacy, for example. So could you speak to us more about how you perceive vision to be collectively agreed on, when you're in these discussions, when you're in these meetings with all sorts of different people on all sorts of different topics in different countries and continents, how do you come to a mutual vision?: Well the
2: terrifying thing <coughs> is that we usually come to agreement on the way forward, which is all vision is really all about at the end of the day. We only usually do that after catastrophe, so uh, after the Crusades Europe was reconstructed, after the religious wars in Augsburg in 1555 and in Westphalia in 1648 Europe was reconstructed, Uh, After the Napoleonic Wars at Vienna in 1815, Europe was reconstructed, then we tried to do it again at Versailles in 1919, and then of course in Bretton Woods and and, uh, San Francisco in 1945. But it always takes a catastrophe before you can actually go and reset the canvas in the sort of way that you need at a particular point in time. And up to that point, what we tend to do is we push the system within the parameters that we agreed previously. Now, whenever you do that, uh, anyone who understands innovation or disruption in the context of technology understands very well that doesn't work. It works up to a point and then it breaks. (coughs) And broadly speaking, we're at that sort of point now in terms of the international system. We've been applying the same rules based largely on what was agreed in 1944, 1945, and then adapted in 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and we've pushed it up to the present. Meanwhile, technology has changed fundamentally. Connectivity on a global scale has been completely transformed. Governments have been disempowered in very significant ways because much of what takes place The financial world is a splendid example, is driven by global forces, not local forces. The Luxembourg economy is terribly important if you're the Minister of Finance or the Minister of Economy, but it's actually not driven too much by Luxembourg. It's actually driven by the global economy in a very profound way, and the same thing applies everywhere else. So we're at a point where we actually have to rethink the premises profoundly act in a disruptive way that isn't too destructive, and develop innovative solutions. Are we likely to do that? Yes, in part. If I were terribly optimistic, I would say we could probably pull it off across all landscapes, but it's very unlikely. We're probably going to hit the wall in a few places, and I think what we've seen with the invasion of Ukraine is one of the first examples of those sorts of problems these knock-on effects of that are going to plague us for quite some time.
0: I was very struck by what you said, which is that sometimes we, well, you actually said we only address issues, big issues, after a catastrophe. When it comes to ideas like climate change, for instance, and when it comes to the situation we have in Ukraine right now, this wasn't unforeseen we've had a build-up we have knowledge of this and we've known for a long time that we shouldn't rely on fossil fuels we have technology but sometimes we don't have that impetus to make the changes so these step changes sometimes come about after great disasters but in your role how can we try to fix things or again, I shouldn't use the word fix, how can we try to change things, address things, before the point of disaster? I
2: I think one's got to recognise how humans behave. And if you simplify it dramatically, you can say that all humans are driven by essentially three forces. The first is fear, and that's why we've survived as a species, because if things in your peripheral vision didn't cause you to react, then you probably would have been eaten a long time ago. So fear, which is driven by the amygdala, sitting here at the back of your head, which then causes a reaction in respect of your adrenal system, is a fundamental driver of human behavior. The second fundamental driver is what you can think of as want, and if it's not entirely inappropriate, that covers the entire spectrum from lust through greed. Uh, It's why, again, we survive as a species. The squirrel hoards the nuts ahead of winter, and obviously we propagate in order to enable the species to continue. So that's a fundamental driver of human behavior. And then the third is social empathy. And women are much better at that than men, because it's related to a particular hormone, oxytocin, which is released during breastfeeding. And the most fundamental bond that we know of in human societies between mother and infant. So those three elements comprise the human system in the simplest of terms. When we get out of balance, when greed takes over or fear takes over, then the system starts to wobble dramatically. And that's where we are right now. We've seen two incidences, the dot-com boom and bust, firstly, and then the global financial crisis, which were driven fundamentally by greed. Uh, That's the reason why we got these extraordinary social inequalities. It doesn't really matter what set of data you take, but the 1% and the 99% or the 0.1% and the 99.9%, whatever reference points you use, on the one hand. And then the sort of thing that we've seen in third-world environments for an extended period of time, but haven't seen in first world environments since the second world war, what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. Driven by fear, right? One part of it is an aspiration to extend empire back to the period in the 1900s when Alexander III held sway over a significant portion of the European landscape. And another part of it is, I think, or was, I think, an authentic fear that NATO was encroaching and confining Russia's space. Disastrous consequences on an enormous scale, apart from the loss of life, apart from the destruction of civilian infrastructure, the displacement of refugees, the impact of the sanctions is causing crisis in energy markets, in supply chains, in food markets, uh, and of course in financial markets around the world. So we've got to create, if we want to induce change in a constructive way at any point in time, a mixture of incentives which encourage constructive behaviour and penalties which discourage it. Getting that right collectively is, in principle, the responsibility of institutions like the United Nations Security Council. When you have vetoes in the United Nations Security Council, it becomes very much more difficult to do that And although there were some efforts to sidestep that problem by using uniting for peace resolutions in the General Assembly of the United Nations, quite frankly the Security Council and I'm afraid my friend the Secretary General have been missing in action during much of what we've seen in the past several months. So here's an example of fear triumphing just as we saw earlier examples of greed triumphing. We've got to get social empathy back into the center of the equation in a meaningful way. Hedley Bull famously said a long time ago that a global community consists of a community of states recognizing reciprocal obligations to one another and agreeing to be bound by the same rules. We've got to get back there. We've been there in the past, we've lost it at the moment.
0: Uh, On the point of empathy, it's very much trying to understand another person's mindset and as you spoke so eloquently earlier about another person's narrative, the narrative of the life that they are living inside, what they've come from genetically, culturally, and environmentally. And on the point of Russia, it may not just be an expansion of empire, but we also have, of course, that that line down to the Black Sea, the ports and Crimea, etc. But when it comes to sanctions, a huge part of this that has been spoken about comes on financial sanctions and the things that can happen from a technological point of view, which is even stronger nowadays than any warfare potentially. So financial instruments play an enormous part in modern, the armory of modern warfare in a way. Can you speak to that, Steve?
3: Well, I I would agree that the the whole uh, horizon is incredibly complex. There's a, there's a lot, of multi, lot of factors, more, more than we can actually compartmentalize and put into understandable component pieces. And it is highly valuable to be able to consider catastrophe as a, a, a focal point of change. So these are the change drivers, the inflection points or the epoch that actually forces societies and uh, individuals to change within that ecosystem. And one of the things we have to rely upon is the existing processes and the existing norms. And within the financial industry, that's the regulator. So the regulator is there to protect the consumer and to um, enforce a a law and the decorum within these institutions. So you have the whole process that's then again technically enabled. And it comes down to pretty basic or simple to understand component pieces. You have the onboarding of a customer, which is the know your customer. You have intelligent systems that can enable that to be done automatically and to deal with exceptions instead of having to speak with every single applicant for a financial product. And those things, in the end, are manifestations of component pieces that are are commercially viable from artificial intelligence. And I remember 30 years ago, I studied uh, computer systems engineering, which was an engineering discipline. And when we studied AI, we went over to the arts part of the university. And it was a philosophical discussion about the future. Well, we're there now. And, and so technology is actually a fundamental component of the social change that is coming about now. And I think all these things come together. So yes, we, need, we have the catastrophe that is the change driver. We have the social uh, imbalances that need to be addressed. We have fewer people working and more people being um, assisted by technology, but then being displaced. And we're, we're at a unique place in human evolution, really, where we, more than any other generation before us, have one foot in the past and one in the future. So, whereas until now, technology was to make things, to use, and then today it could be seen to be to make things to interact with and to automate. Tomorrow it would be technology will take the place of the things we're doing. That's the shift that we have to deal with. And that's, the, that's a, a, a task for everybody and everyone around the same table to make this happen politically and socially. So you can see the, the social changes. You can look at Cambridge Analytica as an example of one small thing that happened quite a long time ago, highly disruptive, highly noticeable. And that kind of power will actually help to be a force for good, to enable the custodians of that technology and those social changes to harness that and to make people's lives better, but it won't be an easy process, it will be a revolution, it will be, it will be very difficult to, to, uh, to see through and will require participation of a huge number of people who are pointing in the same direction.
2: There's two things on it, I, I agree with I think every uh, part of the proposition that you've advanced but there are two things that I think one's got to take into account. Technological disruption is usually a driver for social and political disruption. Think think about the the industrial revolution between 1760 and 1860. We saw in the course of that the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, the Congress of Vienna, the revolutions of 1848, and the complete transformation of the British political system in order to avoid a revolution. At that point in time, we had less people with 12 years of schooling on the planet than we have postdocs today. So the scale of these revolutions information technology, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and neurotechnology intertwined is going to be vastly more disruptive than anything that we've experienced in human history. And unless thoughtful persons like yourself can get ahead of that curve and anticipate meaningfully how we're going to manage it socially, the disruptive effects are going to be more or less inevitable. It's perfectly clear it brings extraordinary opportunity but it is going to be hugely disruptive in respect of its social impact. And I think that's why your original question is an extremely perceptive one.
0: I wanted to ask you, with all of the work that you've done, I mean, I'm actually, I'm going to jump in and ask a slightly sidestepped question, but I'm sure it's related to everything. And you'll
2: edited the way you wanted, I'm sure.
0: Well, <laughs> I, I may not edit anything because you answer so eloquently everything, but... When it comes to your time in Iran, you studied in Iran. I want to ask you about that because it seems like such a fascinating country. I know we have a number of people actually working at least from Iran, for example, and at the moment the country is not doing politically so well and it seems like such a shame. Well,
2: <coughs> Iran, <coughs> Iran is a civilization with nearly 3,000 years of history. Uh, When we were there, and we were obviously there during the period when uh, the Shah and Shah Banu was still on the throne. The revolution occurred in 1979 in Iran and brought Ayatollah Khomeini uh, in a new dispensation with absolutely grotesque human consequences uh, into power. But when we were there, they then Pahlavi dynasty celebrated the 2,500th anniversary of Iranian civilization, and that's not an overstatement uh, in respect of the underlying reality. Um, that gives a community a sense of historical identity that gives it fairly extraordinary cultural resilience through extremely difficult times. so That's the big advantage that Iran has got. One part of that heritage is associated with the split within Islam between Sunni and Shia, which happened uh, shortly after the death of the Prophet. And that defines an outlier position within the Muslim world for a section of the clerisy of the Iranian state. That is what the Ayatollah Khomeini capitalized on. He was also horrified, I think he genuinely was horrified, by the progressive steps that the Shah was taking at that point in time. The Chador had essentially disappeared in terms of the veil for women. Uh, Boys and girls were being educated together in school. Boys and girls were swimming in the same swimming pools and going to the same beaches. Sport was being conducted in an integrated way and there was a fundamental transformation which was antithetical to the limiting constraints of, let's call it mainstream Shia uh, theocracy at that point. That's what Khomeini capitalized on. It's caused 30 years of absolute chaos, there was a period when uh, a... uh, Another president uh, was there for three terms in the mid to late 1990s when I think, frankly, if the West had capitalized more sensibly on the opportunity, we might have brought this to an end earlier. We didn't. And as a consequence, we've dragged it out into the present. The diaspora that you were referring to in part is in Luxembourg, is in Hornby Hills, is in Beverly Hills, is in Paris, is in Geneva, is everywhere in the world. Some of the smartest, most highly educated persons in the world are part of that community. And the circumstance within Iran has been pretty miserable for the majority of people for a long period of time. But frankly, it was a case of an ambition to modernize a still largely rural and traditionally oriented society very fast that led to the revolution itself. The bazaar and the mosque joined hands to resist this transformation of the society, and we got this ghastly revolution that uh, came in its wake.
0: I just wanted to jump on the back. Two questions, and you can answer them as you want to. You have South African heritage. I would like you to tell me, in your view, how South Africa has been doing. I mean, I've visited a few times in the last 20 years. I love South Africa, but I have my own views, but not as deeply rooted as yours, how it's doing as it's moving into its new future state. And I also wanted to ask you, when it comes to a situation like Iran, particularly with your think tank head-on, what responsibility we as external citizens, but we really being the the diplomats have to jump in at what point should they jump in to try to alter the course of a future they think is not a good one?
2: Well, in, In a certain sense once again it's a terribly perceptive question because that is the common element of the question in terms of both Iran in its transition and South Africa in its transition. The South African transition occurred in It essentially began around about 1986-87, and it occurred in a particular context globally. It occurred in the context of Gorbachev uh, having become the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, having announced Perestroika and Glasnost, and having ended proxy wars that were being financed by the Soviet Union also in southern Africa. So at the Kabwe conference in Zambia in 1985, the then Soviet ambassador who also worked for the KGB, head of the fourth division's uh, Africa section, uh, indicated to the ANC that there would be no further funding from Moscow for the armed revolution. The South African government, as a result of the fact that it was under... uh, arms sanctions at that point in time from the vast majority of the western world and was fighting in Mozambique, was fighting in Namibia, was fighting in Angola, had reached the conclusion that it couldn't maintain its position in that way any longer. So, uh, in the words of Bill Zartman, who taught conflict at CSIS in Washington for many years, the conflict was ripe for resolution. And a few of us who saw that and thought it was important to try to address that issue, jumped in and within five or six years we had a national peace accord, we had a convention for a democratic South Africa meeting every day of the week, and by 1994 uh, we had a new government elected for the first time in history on a universal franchise basis. And we had a constitutional framework which was a remarkably balanced and quite far-sighted Uh, constitution for the time. Certainly it was universally regarded, I think, in constitutional law terms as being the most advanced constitution in 1994. So that was very good. The problem is that in all countries, if you wish to be successful, if you wish to advance the well-being of the citizenry and those who are going to invest in the country, you actually have to get five things right. The first thing is that you have to have a reasonable degree of safety and security because otherwise people can't go about their ordinary lives. The second is that you have to have decent physical infrastructure, water, power, transport and ICT, because otherwise you can't extract value out of the opportunities. The third thing is you have to have good human capital and that's a function largely of basic housing, healthcare, and education and training systems of high quality. The fourth thing is that you have to have policies that encourage people to put capital at risk in search of reward, because otherwise nobody will invest, not your domestic investors and not your foreign investors. And all of that requires the fifth thing, which is solid institutions. So the central bank has to be good, the court system has to be good, uh, opportunities for settlement of disputes have to be effective outside of the court system. All of the things that we take for granted in advanced societies. Luxembourg's a splendid example of all of these things in every fashion. The difficulty was that in South Africa, what went wrong first was the delivery of human capital. So the education system wasn't capable of producing enough additional skills such that when the indigenization and uh, blackening, for want of a better phrase, of the economy under black economic empowerment began to occur, there weren't enough highly skilled people to fill all the positions in the private and public sectors simultaneously. We saw the cracks emerging at the municipal level first, provincial level second, and eventually at central government state uh, institutions, and that obviously has contagion effects in respect to the quality of the power utility, the transport utility, the other elements of physical infrastructure, and then it starts to make a bit of a mess of policy making, and that leads to further contamination in respect to the political system as a whole. Those are the challenges that South Africa is facing at the moment, those are the reasons for those challenges. I don't think we've reached a point where it's not possible to turn the ship. I think it is possible, but it's going to require roughly what we were talking about on the global scale earlier. You have to have a collective understanding of the nature of the challenge, you have to have a clear understanding of what you need to change to fix it, and then you have to have the political will and the social commitment uh, to be able to move forward to make it happen. In Iran. There was clumsiness all the way through. There were things that could have been done to prevent the revolution, and there were things that should have been done in the aftermath of the revolution, particularly during that period when the then president was looking for a reform path out of the theocracy. Unfortunately, because of the very fraught relationship between the United States and Iran over an extended period of time, Iran had been the United States' second Israel in the Middle East, and as a consequence of that, emotions were intense. The Iran, Iranian revolutionaries, the student revolutionaries, took over the U.S. Embassy, and having taken over the U.S. Embassy, kept US diplomats hostage for an extended period of time, Jimmy Carter sent helicopter special forces into Iran to try to rescue the hostages, failed dismally and that was one of the factors that contributed to his loss to Ronald Reagan uh, in 1980. Um, So Washington never quite got a grip on how to exploit opportunities that were emerging in the landscape uh, in Iran over an extended period. And it's become very much more difficult after the introduction of the nuclear program and then Mr. Trump's decision to cancel the JCPOA uh, a few years ago, which caused the Iranians to believe you couldn't trust the Americans, you could never trust the Americans, and as a consequence you've got a lot of stupidity on the Iranian side as well. So uh, external intervention, great idea, but it's got to be shrewd, smart and sophisticated. And you have to understand the workings of the society very well if you're going to engage in that way.
0: Sean, thank you so much for giving us extended time on your part. I know you're a very wanted man around these places for all good reasons. So it's really, really wonderful. I feel like you should be doing a history podcast or documentary series.
2: Right, so. I'm sure nobody's really interested.
0: (laughs) I think many people are interested. Thank you so much.
2: Most of us have to worry about what's happening next week and the week after that rather than what happened 700 years ago.
0: (laughs) Well, thank goodness we have people like you to keep us abreast of the situation backwards so that we can learn what to possibly do going forwards.